0: Today's scripture is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Bed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen.
1: So I'd like to begin, uh, as I usually do with a question, and I want to ask, uh, what's your narrative? What's your story Uh, If you come to Trinity Grace Church, you might have heard this question a few times in the past as well, and I have begun the sermon uh, with this very same question several times in the past, and I make no apologies for that because it's a question that we should return to again and again and again, whether we're Christian or not. It's important to think through uh, what's the story that I go out into every day? Uh, What identity do I have? as I see myself in this greater narrative, this greater story, and how does life around me, my work, my relationships, my my own self, as I look into the mirror, how do I make sense of everything I see, from beautiful to ugly, from chaotic to harmonious, how do I make sense of it? What's your narrative? Now our culture certainly, uh, whether they admit it or not, they function, they live by a narrative. Uh, Case in point, just two weekends ago, Frozen 2 came out and uh, Whether you're a child or an adult so many people went out and it broke uh, box office records for animated film And I read one review of it and and the reviewer was saying It's a hard frozen one was hard to follow up on because it was so amazing and epic But frozen 2 really it could not fail because and this was uh, her observation of our culture We are so invested into the characters of this story, that even as a culture, we're willing to find some sense of identity and connection to these fictional characters. And, and so uh, proof in the pudding of just the box office numbers, it, it broke records and raked in a record amount of money. The, the streaming services that many of us are uh, subscribed to make their billions upon billions upon billions because in our hearts, whether we admit it or not or recognize it or not, We live by narrative. And so maybe on the surface we just call it entertainment, but really underneath the surface, it's because we want to find ourselves in a story. Perhaps some of us, our lives are too banal, too boring, and we need some sort of uh, excitement or intrigue. And of course, many of us are still lovers of literature and reading, finding ourselves in stories, for for some people even romance novels because our real romance lives are, are are shoddy and and so we long to find ourselves in a story. Just one more example. Uh, of course, this series uh, in, requires a lot of discretion uh, in in watching it. But why was a series like a cable series like Game of Thrones so popular? Of course, there was a lot of gratuitousness that sells. But this political intrigue. This palace intrigue and and all the scheming and politics and moving of kings and queens and governments and so forth, it's enough to draw people in. So again, I ask, what's your narrative? What's the story, the lens with which you wake up to every day and you go out and you face everyday life? For some of us, it's a story of trusting authority. We recognize some authority in our lives that can come in many different forms. Oftentimes, it's even our past. And we have let our past make a verdict. Our past uh, gives us labels, maybe certain wounds or even success from the past. And we live by that authority. For some of us, it's a story of trusting our impulses, meaning we live right in the moment, right in the present. And whatever will satisfy us uh, maximally, that is our, how we play out our story. And for some of us, our story is of of trusting logic. We approach life just very uh, calculatively and making the most reasonable, sound decision with a view of the future. Because we want to secure our future as long and far as possible. And for some of us still, our story is one of trusting conscience, what guides us through the day. Is a compass of conscience and making sure uh, that we're connected to something greater than ourselves, something good and beautiful and true, something transcendent. But here, just even these, whatever your uh, story is and what you trust, all our narratives, consider this thought, all our narratives, they tend to be narcissistically short sighted, meaning it's very self centered. It's about my benefit, my flourishing, what will make me happy. And even if you have some altruism to yourself and you're thinking of the next generation, it's, it's bookended between the cradle and the grave. It's about how to make this life most maximally beneficial. Now the gospel, what it does is, it offers us our truest identity. And it offers us our truest destiny. The gospel is is a story. It's not a fictional story. It's a real historical story. Just because we use the word story doesn't mean it's fictional. There are real life stories. And the gospel is declaring itself, Jesus is declaring himself as the truest story in which you and I can find our truest identity and our most hopeful destiny. I love what St. Augustine says. I've been reading his confessions again lately. and, And as he reflects, he's praying, the faith you, he's praying to God in his journal, the faith you gave me, which you breathe into me through your son's human life, and through the service your preacher performed, calls on you, master. And so Augustine himself looking to Christ, and not Christ just as some uh, you know, distant spiritual God, but Christ come on earth. His son, the son's human life. And so I, I want to offer to all of us today, uh, I like to summarize the, the message as a short prayer, just the big point of the, the message is a, a short prayer. We would do well for our souls if we praise God this way Lord, I rejoice. I rejoice in your grand gospel story. More than the story of my achievement at work, more than the success and accolades of my children, more than uh, my past and my wounds and hurts, or more than whatever labels and verdicts other people have placed on me, I rejoice in your grand gospel story. And so for the rest of uh, the message, I want to answer the question, how do I rejoice? How do I rejoice in God's story? Because that's that's the, the joy that God wants to give you. That that today, as we begin, now we're in Matthew, our series, we're going back to the beginning and we're going through the birth narratives uh, for the season of Advent. And that is one major joy of Advent, of this Christmas season, that we could rejoice in God's grand gospel story. So, first, we need to A, comprehend God's story, just His story, uh, period. What is His story? And I mean this even before the specific story of Jesus Christ. And so first, let's acknowledge, and I think Matthew wants us to see as we get into the text now, that God, who he is about, part of his character is that he envisions a story. He is a story writer. Perhaps you love, uh, you've heard this play on words, and I, and I love it, and I appreciate it. With profound insight uh, that history is really his story God's story and we see this in Matthew as he starts off uh, his account of Jesus he says the book of the genealogy of Jesus mark for example in contrast he says the gospel according to mark right and he introduces his book as the gospel but Matthew he introduces the gospel as a genealogy This whole book, these 20 chapters that you're about to read, this is the genealogy. It's all about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Genealogy, it's a neat word. It literally means Genesis. It means the origins. And so you could paraphrase this, the book of the origins, and and from the origins, all the generations of Jesus Christ. And so first understand that who God is, And even to bring it practically to your own life. What a hope it brings if you are willing to place your faith in God, a good God, your Father, and in Jesus and the Spirit. And to to find comfort in knowing, God, as I have entrusted my life to you, and all the the ups and downs of it, all the, the beauty and ugliness of it, that you are taking all this and you're writing your masterful, redemptive story, even in my life. God is a story writer, and he wants to write your story. He is writing your story all the more as we place our faith in Christ. Now, two specific aspects of this story then, God's story is that first he envisions a story of blessing the nations. And Matthew, in his very just succinct to the point introduction, he says, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that's his intro before he gets into this long list of names. And his point there is that God's story has always been one of wanting to bless all of humanity every ethnicity, every culture, every person, every human being, no matter their bloodline, no matter their heritage, to bless them. And so, to make it very practical and down to earth to our everyday quickly, I want to ask do you have a heart? For the nations when Matthew points out that Jesus is ultimately a descendant of that he's a son of Abraham he's a descendant of Abraham that embodies Abraham embodies God's promise to Abraham that he will bless the nations through Abraham that it's not only about Abraham's flesh and blood and those who bear his name his last name but through Abraham that a blessing will go out beyond flesh and blood And that God will build a family for himself that doesn't require being born of flesh and blood. And that's supposed to translate to you and I, now specifically talking to Christ followers here, I want to ask the question, the self-reflective question, do you have a heart for the nation? When you go out into your everyday, and Toronto is a great growing ground, a maturing ground for this, as you go to work, as you go to work, And there are the vast uh, number of people unique and different people around you do you have a a heart is there a natural beating of your heart that wants to bless these people very different from you or is there something still very just guarded and self-protective now for the Christ follower well we celebrate and obviously a natural celebration of God's heart for the nations is multiculturalism but the Christ followers heart for the nations is not so much multiculturalism because on that note then Toronto is a city of God because Toronto is the most multicultural city in the world and we celebrate our diversity and so therefore on that point we, we should just declare Toronto the city of God but it's not. Because for the Christ follower and the Christ follower's heart for the nations, the the story that God is writing to bless the nations, it's not so much about multiculturalism as it is a sincere desire to bless someone uncomfortably unfamiliar to you. Look, if we had just a confession session and and just counseling session and and we uh, were were exposed sort of our our list of our short list of VIP people in our life, and then people that annoy us, are difficult, or we have prejudices. That's what this is getting at. God's story is for his gospel to come into our hearts and to transform us in such a way by grace and by his spirit and by the story of Jesus Christ that we actually sincerely want to reach out to those who are uncomfortably unfamiliar to us. Or distant to us and there's a sincere heart a sincere longing for that person even enemy to know the grace of God in their lives but we also see that God is writing a story of a kingdom Matthew gets very concrete and very specific what is God's story what is the origins of Jesus Christ God is writing a story first to bless the nation but now also he's writing a story of a kingdom of a kingdom and so he says the book of the Genesis, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And Matthew points out very to the point and very obviously, loudly, that the reader and the listener, to maybe it was being read, and the listener would pay attention, it would, it would catch their attention, the son of David, that Jesus is from the line of David, a king, Israel's greatest king. Now, for matthew's jewish audience this was all the more purposeful because matthew is trying to convince his readers that jesus is the messiah and therefore legally he had to have a direct line to king david because god prophesied god promised to david that the messiah would be a legal descendant of david and Matthew is proving this through this genealogy that jesus is a legal descendant but it goes even beyond that, because then for you and me, we're, most of us here are, are not Jewish blood, so how is that relevant to you and me? It still is, because in all of our hearts, we long for a good government. Do you have any complaints about government? That's a rhetorical question. Even as I ask that, I see some smirks. And, and, but it's a rhetorical question. I'm not uh, making this a time to vent. But all of us on the positive side, we long for good government from municipal to, let's even backtrack, in the home. Even the home is a little form of order and government. Not, it's not meant to be a dictatorship and so forth, but it's meant to be a, a good uh, form of structure and, 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 and life-giving rules and so forth, to municipal, to provincial, to federal. And, and really, as we look out on all of the globe, global affairs and we see the United Nations or all these summits where the leaders come together we long for them to be wise and good and because oftentimes they are not each of us have our our list of of wanting to vent and complain about our leaders and our government tongue-in-cheek even in the sports world you know this is close to Toronto and even in the sports worlds there's there's government and we have complaints of the things near and dear to us The things, the the organizations and teams that we want uh, to see do well and and just give us some cheer and reason to celebrate. And so even in Toronto in the news recently, we see uh, just uh, some rumblings and and changes in the government of of teams like the Leafs. So what I'm trying to say is, in all our hearts, we, we long for good government. And what Matthew is saying right out of the gates is that the story that God is writing is of the perfect kingdom, the perfect government with a perfect king. See, the Christ follower's hope is not so much to change this world. As we think of the city we live in, the country we live in, we want to change this. And even as Christians, it's good for us to have that inspirational motive, or that, that purpose, that we want to bless the city. We want the city to flourish, and we want to be an influence. And, and that is part of our Christian calling. But our ultimate hope as a Christ follower is not so much to perfect this existing world as it is to change worlds. One day in due time, to be transferred once and for all into God's new kingdom and His new creation, with His perfect king on the throne. And Matthew, out of the gates, is heralding that Jesus is this king. Jesus is the one that we need to ultimately hope in, not to just make this world better, not just to make our lives better while we are here on this earth better and more comfortable and more harmonious, but that Jesus will transfer us and he will change us. He'll change worlds. He'll transfer us into his kingdom. Now, in the meantime, then, as Christ's followers, we exist. We still exist here on this earth to overflow Jesus as our great king, the perfect king that we hope in, and his grace into a new city, AKA the church, the church is a, is a every local church is, is a little new city of God's grace growing outward. And we're meant to influence our neighborhoods and our surroundings and our circles of influence as you go to work and wherever your influence is. We're meant to have um, Christmas parties for women who are downtrodden, uh, like our Met Christmas banquet coming up. We're meant to host gingerbread parties For the neighborhood and 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 just show and share the wonderful grace of God to kids in the neighborhood we're meant to uh, invite foreigners foreign students to come and give them free uh, access to learning English and and to try to grow in their abilities and skills to be able to navigate this world better and I could go on and on that how we're meant to be a little new city and the whole point is that we serve as a signpost We serve as a signpost to point to as this new city within, yes, this beautiful city of Toronto, but it is fading. The city is fading. It's ultimately a fading city, and we're meant to point to the one true eternal city, the kingdom of God. And Jesus being born, this genealogy of Jesus, the fact that he is a legal descendant of David, is strength for the Christian it's confidence for the Christ follower that what you are doing to live out your faith day in and day out and to build up the church and to edify the fellow Christians and to be a blessing to those who still haven't placed their faith in Christ it is worth it it is a most confident endeavor but we also need to comprehend not only God's story but we need to comprehend our story. And so now we get into the names. And first I I want to suggest, I want to observe that these names, even though they're not our flesh and blood ancestry, they serve as a mirror for us to look into. And this long list of names, it also exposes our condition. It, It reflects on our story. And our story first is about a forgotten origin and destiny you think through I counted the number of uh, generations that are listed and if I counted correctly 39 generations from Abraham to uh, Joseph the husband of Mary the legal father of Jesus not the flesh and blood father but the legal father and you you imagine Joseph we know that he was a hard-working uh, dignified respectable blue-collar carpenter working hard And as he's going into work every day, as his fingers continue to get calloused, as he is uh, continuing to labor and and perhaps even himself feeling uh, taken advantage of by those with more money and so forth, as he's doing life and grinding through, how much do you think he was waking up every day and had this notion of, I am the son of Abraham. I am the son of David, the King David. I imagine it's not said objectively, but I'm—I'd I'm, I'd be if I was a betting man—I'd I'd put money on it that the, all the pride and benefits of having come from royalty the long forgotten his life. And there too is, is something for us to—a mirror to look into. And as we go beyond Abraham, Luke in his genealogy of Jesus, he goes all the way back to Adam. And Adam being the Son of God, our, our humanity collectively has forgotten where we come from. If every day we woke up and walked with identity so closer than our own skin, and we knew that who we are is that we are children of God, and we knew that we can be fully loved and reconciled and experience all the blessings, the spiritual blessings of God through Christ. If we walked in that identity every day how would our lives be different how would our workplaces be different and so this story first is a story it it reflects our story and it's really a broken story forgotten origin and where we're meant to be headed but our story is also a story of suffering the curse Matthew I appreciate it and really the whole Bible is never shy to expose the brokenness of its people. Even the heroes in the Bible are all flawed characters, deeply flawed characters. And in this genealogy, the origins of Jesus Christ and his family bloodline is so much are so many skeletons, well not skeletons, it's all exposed, not in the closet, but just exposed skeletons. Even as we read And the pattern goes, blank was the father of blank. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, just stop there. If you're not familiar with the story of Jacob, he was a cunning little man, little rascal. He took advantage of his elderly, blind father and cunningly deceived his older brother to steal the family blessing. And this Jacob, his Sons didn't fall too, much, too far from the tree. And his sons, when it mentions Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, his 11 other brothers, the uh, 11 brother, really more like 10 brothers, schemed because they were so jealous of their, for their father's love towards one of the brothers, Joseph. And if you don't know the story, scheming and, and uh, faking the gruesome, violent, gory death Of Joseph, and it threw their father into tailspin of grieving and crying out because he had lost the son of uh, his beloved son Joseph that he favored. And then Judah, later on in in his in his story, Judah being the specific son of Jacob from whom David came, and that Jesus would come, the promise through whom would come uh, the Messiah. This Judah, this is how. Dignified and noble and above reproach, he was. One of his sons uh, couldn't produce uh, a son for his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And so uh, Judah made a promise to Tamar that uh, Tamar would still be honored in just the customs of the day. But Tamar, not seeing Judah fulfill his promise to Tamar, she uh, disguises herself as a prostitute and lures Judah. Judah was himself first going to a prostitute, and his intention, that part was already half done, that part was easy, and he was going uh, for the services of a prostitute, and Tamar, disguised, lures him in, sleeps with her father-in-law, and then keeps evidence that it was indeed him, and when she gives birth to his son, comes back to Judah and to expose what's happened. Now, if this isn't material for some new Netflix original, (laughs) I don't know what is. The Bible here as well, even on that level, this intriguing story that is unashamed to hide any of the brokenness of humanity, and yet this this is a mirror for our own stories. And what I mean by this is, Bigger picture is that this is a story of these generations here. We could go on and on, these names. Rahab being brought into the story of God, the redemptive story of God. She also was a prophet and not Jewish. And where Jewish people were supposed to be strictly homogeneous, ethnically homogeneous. Yet God is delighted to bring in this uh, prostitute, non-Jewish woman. And Ruth as well, the name, other female name that I've highlighted, a non-Jewish woman. And here, King David, the wife of Uriah. And so David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, not even mentioning the wife's name, but Uriah mentioned because Matthew wants to expose that in Jesus' genealogy, the origins of Jesus, here is the great King David that we thought, that Israel thought perhaps is the Messiah. Through him uh, conniving, to to murder Uriah, to cover up his adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. See, all this is evidence of us living under the curse of sin. The curse of sin, going to Genesis 3 where where sin enters and our hearts now become so evil. And, And all of us, if we were put in the right situations, if we were put in the exact same situations We cannot be so proud to think that we might not succumb. And yet God is pleased to have the origins of Jesus, the genesis of Jesus, be this this blemished line. So now let me apply it to us. How How do you process your skeletons in the closet? And do you have any overarching hope Of your entire story being redeemed. See, our story, God's story, is this beautiful vision of blessing the nations and a perfect kingdom, but our story is broken. I love what Robert J. Lifton, a secular psychologist and a pioneer in neuropsychology, he reflects on humanity. Today's self is restlessly bent on reinvention. Mainly in order to get rid of a nagging sense of guilt that creates tremendous anxiety despite its unknown origins. Another way you could just label uh, the genealogy of Jesus is this story of guilt, of generations failing again and again. And this is true not only of the story of Israel and Jesus' genealogy, but even hum- humanity at large. And this is a secular psychologist observing this of his fellow humans. But now, the hope. Christmas and Advent is about hope. And so we also need to comprehend not only God's story from a 30,000 foot view, but now the Christmas story. I love what St. Augustine, again, just uh, how he meditates and reflects in his confessions. But what place is there in me to come into for my God? he's, He's mesmerized and wrestling with how does God of heaven, transcendent, holy, perfect, just God, and I should have no place of survival before him and acceptance, but how does he come into me? For God to come into me, the God who made heaven and earth, is it as if God my master, there's anything in me that could hold you? And truly there is not that's the answer but how God comes into us how this great God comes into us is now we get to the end of today's passage and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born how does God come into us first he comes into the form of a little baby We have several newborns in our congregation just go and and adore those newborns and try to picture just imagine a newborn jesus in this innocent helpless pure babe is the entirety of the god of the universe and this jesus was born who is called christ i want to show a video that summarizes This grand story of God from the Bible Project and just, just does such a wonderful job to summarize what I'm trying to get at today. And so, enjoy.
2: There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden.
3: And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except... There's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh,
2: Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine.
3: Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost, and evil and death enters into God's good world.
2: Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this
3: thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so, whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today.
2: But there is some hope because, right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve
3: that someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's
2: heel. So it's like a mutual destruction.
3: Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story. When God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line, and that the whole world's going to follow this king, and he's going to bring peace and harmony, and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards, and it's going to be awesome.
2: The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher.
3: But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total... Chumps. They give into the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so
2: bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground, and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out.
3: And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people.
2: But the Old Testament ends and
3: the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here, now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself.
2: The fatal snakebite wound.
3: Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises
2: from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself.
3: And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives.
2: But even still,
3: death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth.
1: Doesn't that give you hope? That's what Christmas is about. And so when we read Matthew concluding this section, Jesus was born who is called Christ. See, Christmas is about Jesus restoring our truest identity and destiny. Christmas is about Jesus reversing the curse that is over life. And Christmas is about Jesus, period. It's it's to fall in love with God who has loved us through this precious babe who will grow up into a full-grown man and whose exact and focused purpose is to go onto the cross to defeat sin and death for you and me be raised so that that can come to full fruition. And so I love what Mark Jones says in conclusion, redemption, which we have only through Christ, even redemption is still inferior compared with the worth and glory of his person. See, Christmas is about Jesus, period. It's the glory in this Christ who embodies God's love for us, the one who is willing to take the punishment of sins for ourselves who, 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 who reverses everything. And so I hope you'll pray with me. Lord, I rejoice in your grand gospel story. Amen.